Charlotte MacGyver from NUI Galway, and this is a podcast from Dead Dog in a Suitcase and Other Love Songs at the 2019 Galway International Arts Festival. Dead Dog in a Suitcase and Other Love Songs is a production by Nehi Theatre Company, which is an adaptation of the classic 18th century opera by John Gay, The Beggar's Opera. I spoke to the cast about this fantastic production. So hello everyone, um, welcome and thank you for staying. Um, my name is Charlotte McIver and I'm a lecturer in drama and theater studies here at NUI Galway. I'm really honored to be here with director Mike Shepard of this fantastic production that we've seen tonight. So this is my second time seeing the production uh, and more than I suppose my second time of seeing Nehi's work. But one of the lines that really stuck out to me tonight is that good things happen to the bad men, okay? And this feels to be a line that is about our moment, and particularly as a US expat living in Ireland, living through the rise of Donald Trump, there's a lot in this show that feels to me like it was written yesterday. But of course it was written 200 plus years ago. And in fact, the source text, The Beggar's Opera by John Gay, was the most popular play of the 18th century, and really redefined for the Western canon what a political play meant, and what an entertaining political play meant. And if that wasn't enough, then in the 20th century, Elizabeth Hauptman, Bertolt Brecht, and Kurt Weill reinterpreted this as the Beggars, as the Three Penny Opera, which played more than 10,000 times between 1928 and 1933, before they were deported by the Nazis in Germany. So this play is a political lightning rod, an aesthetic lightning rod, and we have seen political theater, I think, reinvented for a generation, for this moment, seeming to be before, seeming to be of the zeitgeist but in fact being a production that has been under development now for more than five years. So we're very privileged to have Mike up here with us today and also members of the company Thank here. Yeah. Um, so I'll open it up to them now, I suppose, to talk to us about the genesis of this work and how it has developed over the course of the tour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we've only just brought it back, so please don't think we've been working on it for five years. Um, and. And we made it, yeah, five years ago. Um, it's, it's worth saying that Charles Hazelwood, who is a brilliant composer and conductor, Google him, um, he started the Power Orchestra. Uh, and he's just an extraordinary man that works in all sorts of areas of music. And he brought us, brought us this story because, um, yeah, it was Gay's reaction to the ruling classes of the time and the, the Italian opera so he collected the dirty ditties off the streets as it were so popular songs and that was Charles's way into it um, I wasn't at all sure I didn't know who McHeath was he just seemed to be another of these Don Juan Casanova type womanizer uh, and the women seemed to be prostitutes and then I, I read the Thrupney opera as well and it was one line of Brex which was um, the world is poor and man's a shit. Mm. And I thought, oh. And then I'm from Cornwall, um, beloved Cornwall, that voted UKIP. <laughs> and then it voted Brexit. And I went through my old CDs collection and I took out The Clash. Um, and I played Know Your Rights really loud as I hammered up the motorway away from Cornwall. And, and it marked a sort of new era for me of I, um, 
I kind of always thought I was going to retire in that little fisherman's, that damp fisherman's cottage in Cornwall. But suddenly the world was much bigger and I took, I took a team from Niai in January to the Calais jungle and, and suddenly the world was so much bigger and, and I went, I, I want to do a new beggar's opera because now seems the time. And it was all a bit of a joke uh, in some in some things like Nigel Frottage, we thought, well, we thought, oh no, we'll bring Ni Nigel Frottage, he won't exist when we bring it back. But, oh God, how depressing that what at the time felt like, well, this can't happen, this can't happen. But, but, but now it sort of has. When, when we opened it in May, when we first brought it back, and we were in Southampton, uh, and we opened it predominantly to young people in Southampton, and there was such a rage and such a roar at the end. Uh, and it was the time of Greta Thunberg and everyone. And I thought, oh, this feels, I mean, we're, we're not offering any solutions other than, yeah, bring it all down and start again. But, oh, it, it felt good to at least roar about what's happening. Mm. I mean, one of the things that I was conscious of as watching it and thinking about it is that, that beggars, uh, the beggars opera is often thought of as a satire. And this seems to not be a satire. This seems to be a kind of brutal realism or a sort of nihilistic, beautiful take on, on what is has gone beyond satire. And even, yeah. I think one of the most striking images to me in the production is the, the dinosaur skeleton crashing down at the end, which seems to me to anticipate, or maybe I suppose reprise a lot of the images around climate protests, around extinction rebellion coming here in the, in the last two years or so. So there is a way in which this production reinvents and reinvigorates political theater in ways that are not just about like, well, what is the solution or the redeeming of McKeith, which was a, a, a feature of both the Beggar's Opera and the Three Penny Opera, even in a sort of the ironic sort of way. There were two things that, um, and, and, and the brilliant Carl Groves, long time, me, I remember then absolutely wrote the script as we went along. But as I started to, to, to think about it, there were two decisions I made very, very early on. One was, I didn't see why McKeith should be reprieved. And the other one was, if you're gonna behave like that, there's gonna be babies. <laughs> <laughs> early on. And the babies got their own round of applause. So we're yeah. <laughs> so approved of that as well. So I might invite those on the stage to identify themselves and, and their role within um, the production because without costumes, perhaps, you know, we would translate them. So this is Mike Shepard, the director of the play, and then... Uh, I'm Tim. Uh, I, I was in the puppet booth being Mr. Punch and various <laughs> other characters. And I'm Bev, and I played Lucy Lockett. I'm Georgia, and I played Filch and Terry. I'm Alex, and I was uh, one of the musicians. I'm James, and I was one of the musicians. Uh, I'm Dominic, and I'm also, um, well, I'm not a musician, I was about to say, I'm also a musician, I'm getting my beer. <laughs> I'm Dominic, and I played McKeith. Respect, I have actually never conducted a talk back where people were having beers, and I respect that. So. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't um, do it if they didn't have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's very Galway, I feel. Um, so I suppose, so we've talked, I guess, been dwelling on the politics of it, and how it feels very much of this moment very immediate. But again, this production has had a kind of life and then a gap. I suppose, how has the production, have all of you been involved with it since the beginning? And how has your experience of the production changed either coming into it 
in this political moment or living through the progression from 2014 to now? Before they answer, I'd just like to say that um, it's got harder and harder to actually tour, and we're trying to develop a more dynamic way of working where we're building a squad. Mm. So some people do do it every night, um, but there is a bit more of a bit more of a squad system to allow people to come in and out of it. I recently came off the subs bench. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> uh, taking over. I had to get, get get up to speed with the puppets. I took over from Sarah Wright, who has done it all the time. I think she was replaced one time before in New Zealand, I think. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that was a hard hard role to fill. But it was great fun. Suddenly being running around with everyone in <laughs> in the thick of it all. But yeah, it's been uh, yeah quite a thing coming up to speed with it. But it's been great fun. Tom and James are the original. Yeah. You, you yeah. guys have been in it since, since the, the beginning, up. haven't you? Yeah. 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 You alright, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do I open my beer? <laughs> give it to Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yay! Right, and now I talk. So, uh, <laughs> yes, we've, we, we've been in it since the first version, and my, my memory for, for was of you and our first team of musicians doing a lot out at the Knee-High Barns in Cornwall, doing a lot of exploring all these different genres with Charles Hazelwood. It was a bit more straightforward for the actors because although we did a lot of messing about, we did have the script already, by which Carl had written. But you guys, I mean, that's quite interesting what you were all doing. You were messing about with all kinds of different things, weren't you? Yeah, those were a great kind of two weeks of just playing with stuff, really. The barns are kind of really a great place for creation space and you go and walk and come back and make weird noises until, <laughs> until people are sick of you making weird noises. Um, yeah, it was a lot because we did a lot of, kind of character development and musical development alongside it. So kind of pairing like different styles of music and kind of, kind of punk rage to uh, trip hop and, and all the way back to kind of and stuff as well, so it was just, yeah. It, it is strange yeah. thinking back to that time, because certainly when we've done the show as many times as we have, you're kind of used to it all being together, but it's, it's very rare to have, you know, every, virtually every single song is a different style. I'm sure all of them are, aren't they? Every single one, I would think. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting for me, because I wasn't one of the original musicians involved in the development of the show, but I have been a musician involved in the development of other knee-high shows. And I'm not saying that one one experience is better than the other, but it's very different not being involved in that initial process mm. because I'm sure with some theatre companies and some contexts, uh, as a musician, you're kind of given some dots and you're told, this is the music that you're playing, go ahead and do that. Mm. When you're working with Charles Hazelwood, who was responsible for the music in the show, and working with Nehi, actually, Charles described it to me once as we've got a great big pile of wet clay in the middle of the rehearsal room and we're all just kind of playing with it. And I, I really, in, in, in other knee-high shows, I've really enjoyed being part of that process. And so the energy that you then bring to performing and feeling like you own it is very different. Like mm. I said, not better or worse, just different. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting. Mm. It's still huge fun. Yeah. 
And we quite often feel like a pile of wet clay at the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think one of the things watching it as a theatre history study, as a, as a theatre lecturer, as a theatre history nerd, is like feeling the weight of history on the stage, and particularly thinking about the characters of Lucy and Filch, and then the brilliant characterizations or the interventions that you brought in to those, to those, to the, to the female character, and then to Filch as this reinvention and as this kind of strange moral center of the and I suppose the question is for the two of you, but really everyone here, like were you, I suppose, in conversation with the earlier adaptations or, 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 or versions of the play, or did you really approach this in the text as you came to it from the creators here? Um, I, I approached it in the text, and I um, there was a, a lady who played my part before me, who, and we're totally different. She's, she's an acrobat. Yeah. Yeah, so she could sort of do some crazy stuff, whereas I can give it balls. <laughs> so I knew that we were going to play it very differently. Um, and, and that's the great thing about working with this company is that you can bring what you can, can give to the table and they, and they will take that and they'll go with it. And um, yeah, so that's how I got to Lucy Lockett. Yeah, um, sort of similar. The last two people that played Filch were blokes. Mm. So to begin with, that was different, but also not because it was. I I just went with what was in the script and and went with the heart of Filch rather than messing about with like playing masculinity or mm. playing, you know, a gender or it was just like playing the truth of Filch and that was all in the script. Like he's just so honest, as is Terry. They're mm. both these real, as you say, moral censors, and. Um, and yeah, like there were videos, I'm sure you had, of previous yeah, people like, who played the part, and I just didn't watch them because you, you want to you find it yourself. And what was so beautiful is uh, we were allowed to do that in, in the rehearsal room. And similarly with music, we, I had like Charles just being like, with my solo being like, yeah, just, just try something. And you're just like, what? Because it's just this power that you don't expect. And that's... And for something to be in its third reincarnation and mm. you're still allowed that power is, mm. is quite great. But it also is a, a token to the way it's been written that, that, that the characters are there. You just need to bring them out. Mm. It's also to do with a, a sense of company. The years I run it with Emma Rice and she's the same. Um, one, I, I mean, I, I think both of us feel it. it's the opposite of being creative that just look at a video of who's done mm. it before and do it beat by beat. So whether it's the musicians not giving you a set of dots, so what, what does Johnsy bring, which is completely different from Ian Ross that did it before. Um, and um, we, we're not trying to go do it like this. We're looking all the time to, to find surprise, mm. because that's creativity. Um, we, we're not looking uh, I, I mean, I used to be a teacher in the times, time when um, education was much, much more about exploration and, and finding out and about surprise rather than getting it right. We're so, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but in England we're so obsessed with having to get it right and stick it in a box. Mm. Um, so uh, we, we actually auditioned three people for Filch. Mm. Two of them came in and were Filch. They were brilliant. They were both blokes, they could mm. sing brilliantly. And then Georgia shuffled in with a guitar <laughs> and said, I can't really I can't really play this, but 
but I'd written you a song. And it was me, Charles Hazel, and Carl Groves, a writer. And at the end of it, we all went, which I think a lot of people, casting directors, agents, etc., would find strange, if not perverse. We all went, her, we want her. I wonder what she might bring, rather than just have one of the two blokes that were finished. But I think it, it set your performance last night, because I saw it last night and tonight as well, sent me on like this archival search where I was trying to see whether Filch was originally played by women back in the day, because I think that this production to me feels that it's, it's not trying to either replicate history or move behind, beyond it, but there's this deep and beautiful knowledge to quote Beresford Breck, where you're doing not this, but that, and very intentionally. And I think coming back to the character of Lakeith as well, and why does he get off in the earlier versions and you choose a different choice here, which is so impactful for audiences, whether we know the earlier versions or not. Um, and, and that's lovely, I suppose, as both a, a kind of informed or uninformed audience to take in. Um, I want to open it up to the audience now in terms of questions that you have for the company about what you've just seen, um, what you would like to be in dialogue further about. So, yes, first row here. question is the movement was so beautiful it was frenetic how did you find the movement within the piece and were there ever catastrophes within how you worked with an ensemble the whole thing is totally choreographed and that includes like backstage as well that you can all sort of see but the, you're always doing the same routes and um and we had um lovely etta working with us and she helped out with all of that and she choreographed even like the tables moving all of that sort of thing there has been a few sort of, <laughs> I tripped up the stairs yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> um, somebody fell, didn't they, when we did in New Zealand? Somebody? Yeah. Yeah, she <laughs> fell nothing, no, nothing disastrous. Though. No, nothing, yeah. nothing mad. But it is like a, a playground, so you're constantly, you know, you have to have your wits about you a bit. And yeah. And, and when it was first designed, the first initial design was very ordered and very symmetrical and very square. And I have to say it's me who said, could it have a curve and could the planks be jagged and could I have a quick route up and down and could people, because um, all the windows were exactly the same size like those, and I said some of them could open up because I, I need people to inhabit this world as if it is it, it is the sewers and, um, and yeah, I want a quick way off there with a fireman's pole or a slide. So I think that that description of adventure playground. Mm. Um, and and we, we're, we're a company, um, not that you were there 40 years ago, Tim was nearly, <laughs> but we used to perform on castle ramparts or We never did risk cliffs. assessments in those No, things. we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, but we and all you're had... The, you're the only two left, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's innate, innate survival. It really was innate survival. And oh no, I'm not going to say that because I'll blow it. But I, I've actually I've got to now, haven't I? Yeah. But I've been performing for over 40 years inside, outside, kennel veil, gunpowder, um, 
mostly robot now, aren't you? Mostly, mostly <laughs> metal now. No, I've, I've never missed a show. I've never missed a show, and I, I think that's... <laughs> hey! <laughs> uh, certainly those barns that James <laughs> talked about, it's the top of the hill, there's fresh air. We run, we climb, we jump, we roll about, and you build, you build a certain vigour and rigour and robustness. Mm. And we used to, we don't do it anymore. Um, I thought I'd missed it, and I went and tried to help with the loading the other day, and I thought, well, no, I don't miss this at all. <laughs> but we used to load vans, and drive, but there was, there, was, there was a fitness um, mm. a, and a strength and an innate sense of survival. Uh, and, and hopefully, you're talking about history, mm. hopefully that pervades with the new people that come into the company. Mm. Um, I like to think I am sympathetic, but I'm not that sympathetic. If, no. <laughs> <laughs> when, peop when people say, oh, I'm really tired, I think, well, what are you telling me that for? You literally <laughs> said that to yeah, me. Yeah, what are you telling me that for? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with that information? We're all knackered. <laughs> do, we know yeah, if, do we know if uh, Bertolt Brecht ever helped load the van? Well, there you go. I'm sure Thank he did. Of course he did. He never had a van. <laughs> they didn't need a van. They had a resident company. Yeah. Um, other questions from the audience or comments in terms of your reaction? Yeah, over here. From whence came the dinosaur? From whence came the dinosaur? Well, this is slightly contentious. Um, because actually, yes, thank you, it's a dog. Um, but I, I, I quite like the fact it's dinosaur as well, because it is nature exacting its revenge. Um, so it was a spectral dog, Toby coming back to take revenge. But I do love, I, I, I don't know who, the, there's been plenty of poetry, etc., in the literature where nature bursts back through the concrete and takes its revenge on all us idiotic humans. I think that's the climax of every Jurassic Park movie as well. Yeah. The dinosaur crashes back <laughs> in. And it's worth talking about move, movies as well as we're talking about choreography because the way um, I think I, I direct and the way Carl writes is quite filmic. Mm. So you have what I call antiphonal scenes, you know, so mm. it goes from there to there to here and then back mm. again. And we leave scenes before they've finished and we start them before they've started, if you know mm. what I mean. So um, I, I think, and that's through being dragged as a schoolboy to Exeter Northcott, oh, from Cornwall, you have to sit for three hours through Shakespeare. Oh, oh. Act one, scene one, scene two, scene three. Not there's anything wrong with Shakespeare, it's brilliant. But I, 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 at a base level, and this is going to sound flippant, I don't want theatre to be boring. Yeah. So you might have hated that tonight, but I hope you weren't bored.
can tell them you're tired for a start. <laughs> yeah. Say you're tired, right. then you come into comp. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's a popular misconception that you know we're we're a bunch of hippies on a cliff in Cornwall. That, do you remember? No, do you remember we were doing this in the asylum? Yeah, <laughs> we were doing this in the Lost Gardens of Elegant in a big tent that is purpose-built by Knee for certain shows. And we were doing this show the first time round. And we were in the interval of the show, and it was getting dark outside. Yeah. And I assume a 16-year-old, or I don't know what age he would have been, but someone went past on a bike, yeah. right past us, and went, knee-high hippies! <laughs> <laughs> Top of his voice. I've never rude. been a hippie, I say that. But it, or, or that somehow magic happens by osmosis. Uh, and no. Um, you know, whether it's me or, or Emma Rice or Etta Murphy or or Charles Hazelwood or Carl Groves, that, that creative team, absolutely you're going to generate a company that feels ownership um, so, that, so that they can commit to it. Um, but no, and absolutely you're encouraging play and, and creativity and, and the chance to be creative uh, and enjoy yourself. But no, we, we craft it in the end. Um, but having said that, I have got a thing. Um, the reason we do theatre is because it's live. Mm. How do you keep it alive? So I, absolutely it, it gets crafted, but I would always encourage people to find something different, stay true to the story, but find something different um, because every audience is different. Mm. There's quite a big decision made this time around, which we hadn't done before in terms of sound. Is there a cast or have microphones now and it is kind of sound design before so Charles had and quite rightly his kind of thing is like sound is really kind of important and you can go from that to like tiny kind of whisper and you should be able to hear a whisper kind of in a space like this especially you can hear me talking without any mics now you can hopefully hear me at the back um, but when you're kind of moving from venue to venue it becomes tricky and you kind of sometimes look behind arches and you want to keep that kind of eye, you want to keep the feeling of that whisper coming from that, from that place. But logistically, it's quite a kind of big decision made that this needs a bit of support and help so that people's voices can kind of um, last. And I guess that's kind of, in terms of, we've done it twice before. about the feeling within the ensemble because all of the performers are switching between different parts. Some are musicians and playing different characters within the play and then some of the musicians are inhabiting that role primarily. I suppose, what was that like, the integration between the different, I suppose, levels of people playing characters, people doing music uh, as a group together? I think it's just mutual respect as a whole. We are a company. There's no sort of very clear you are a musician
Yeah. It's a much, uh, much nicer way to be as well, isn't it? I, I did a more sort of traditional musical last year, which had a big company and was a sort of old-fashioned musical. And the, the musicians turned up and you have that moment in a musical and the sits probe happens, which is where the, suddenly the orchestra appears and they play and you're all like, oh, this is very good, aren't they good? It's very nice. But then you never see them again. Mm. They go no. into the pit and you occasionally, you have these awkward moments because even though you're creating even one beautiful moment where someone's singing a solo or something and there's a cello playing or there's this happening and you don't even see them. It's extraordinary, you know, compared to this where not only are we s sort of together through the process, we are then literally, you know, you guys are out on stage you know, as part of it, which is a much, yeah, much more integrated way to work. Those are the shows where as a musician you're, you're given the dots and you're on an, a musician's union contract probably, which means that you turn up at 5pm and you work until 5.45 and then you have a tea break and then, you know, uh, this is not at all like that. And uh, from, uh, from the point of view of someone who's a musician, I'm, I have uh, I boundless respect for some of the actor musicians in the company. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, totally not calling up, but but Tim, for example, who doesn't necessarily play a stitch of music in the show, is the most phenomenal player. Who I'm like, oh my god, he's incredible and can pick all sorts of things up and be wonderfully musical. It feels very much like we're all able to kind of, uh, yeah, dive into music making and it feel very democratic. It's, it's lovely. Yeah. Fascinating. That's a very interesting process for me in that Mike asked me to play Mayor Goodman at the beginning and I'm, I have no experience as an actor at all. But there's something lovely about Nihai which is, and Mike, Mike and I were talking about this recently, you're encouraged and supported to take risks, whatever those might be. And so I felt very encouraged and supported to do that. And as James said, I do the bit at the beginning of the show where I'm kind of shitting myself a little bit. Uh, and so everything else that happens after that feels really Before the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it might be quite challenging musically, I get it. And we, we extended his death last night, didn't we? We yeah. shoot him twice now. Yeah. <laughs> I feel properly <laughs> shot. Maybe a few more minutes, a few more questions from the audience here. Yeah, right here in the first row. Um, this is kind of a simple question maybe, but there are some incredibly stunning lines in the show, and I was wondering if there was any line in particular that stands out to you or you look forward to hearing each night or saying each night or what? So the question is, there are a lot of, there's a lot of beautiful language in the show. Is there any particular lines the company looks forward to hearing every night? We can't blame the world, we make, we make the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah Widow Goodman's speeches are pretty, yeah, they get me a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I always, the one where she comes into the factory um, always gets me because it's, it's much more than what the literal meaning of what she's saying. Um. Although because we're all overgrown children, we sort of prefer it when one of our number fluffs a line. That's a really enjoyable <laughs> moment for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Did that happen tonight? No, not tonight, Mike. It was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Which was? It's really seductive. <laughs> yeah, what's the original line then? 
count it if you want. Don't need to count it, Filchie. In matters of murder, I find employees, employees to be refreshingly honest, and I said employees to be extremely seductive. <laughs> <laughs> so I now just, you've I all really enjoyed it as well. You said it really slowly. <laughs> 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 extremely seductive. <laughs> uh, what can I say? I was taken by Filch in that moment. <laughs> Extremely seductive note. Thank you to this cast for seducing us with their fantastic performance. And thank you.